Today, from the Global Lane, the UN warns the world is on the highway to climate hell. More dire predictions about the end of the world at Climate Summit 2022. They're talking about the end of life on Earth as we know it, sponsored by Coca-Cola. Going electric, EV sales rising, and now a potential fusion power grid breakthrough. As exciting as this is, especially from a scientific perspective, it's not some holy grail answer to all our clean power needs. Breaking promises. Who can you trust? It's one thing to make a promise. But it's another thing to keep a promise. The reason we can trust God's promises is because of his character. Satan is on the move in schools and state capitals, but he won't crash this party. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Are we on the highway to climate hell? The United Nations Secretary General warns the world is heading in that direction. Dale Hurd reports that climate change alarmists once again took center stage at a global climate summit. This time, they gathered in the Middle East. The pyramids were lit up to welcome world leaders to the UN climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. In what almost looked like an end-of-the-world trade show sponsored by Coca-Cola and other big corporations. This summit began as many others, with the dire warning that life on Earth will end if climate change isn't stopped. The clock is ticking. We are in the fight of our lives, and we are losing. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. One has to wonder, however, whether this doomsday rhetoric can be trusted. After all, 50 years ago, the UN warned mankind had only 10 years to stop the catastrophe. 40 years ago, the UN said we have until the year 2000 to prevent the equivalent of a nuclear holocaust. And 15 years ago, the UN warned that if climate change wasn't stopped by 2012, it would be too late. The world has not only failed to end, CO2 emissions are 50% higher than they were 20 years ago. With even the UN now admitting its policies have failed, some want to throw even more money at the problem. After 26 previous summits and trillions spent on the climate, the UN still doesn't have a working blueprint to lower the Earth's temperature. For this 27th attempt, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry says what's needed are trillions of dollars more. There's also support for hundreds of billions in so-called loss and damage payments to poor nations, basically climate reparations. Climate activist Greta Thunberg denounced this summit as a scam and greenwashing. That's when a company fakes its environmental commitment. But climate skeptic and author Mark Morano at this summit told us he saw more corporate sponsors than ever before. We've been completely corporatized. The main partners this year are everyone from Microsoft, Google, uh, to uh, IBM, and all these big corporate conglomerates that come in. Meta is here, the parent company of Facebook. Al Gore was there pushing his new Climate Trace Initiative, a global network that tracks down carbon emitters so they can be fined or shut down. For any nation that requests our assistance, Climate Trace can provide all of the assistance necessary, a complete inventory of all of the emissions from every major point source in its territory every year for free. 
But with the UN itself admitting failure, the biggest impact of climate policies has been a worldwide energy crisis through an over-reliance on green energy. And all the failed prophecies of doom over the years don't seem to matter. If you're Al Gore, if you're John Kerry, uh, if you're any climate activist, how do you walk this back? Okay, we've been doing this for 30 years and these people have come out with the most dire warnings, by the way, none of which have turned out to be true. How do they ever walk it back? They can't. They just have to keep it going. CBN News senior international correspondent Dale Hurd joins us with more. Dale, if these were Christians making prophecies over the past 30 years and none of the prophecies came true, people would stop listening to them. So why are people still listening to Al Gore, John Kerry, and other climate prophets of doom? Yeah, it's kind of like a dead faith that's unwinding, but it still has credence with some people. You know, this issue is like dead last uh, among voters' concerns. And yet when you look at uh, do people believe in climate change, the numbers are still, to me, alarmingly high. I think partly because people just don't want to get hassled about it and or they haven't looked into it. And so it just kind of keeps rolling down, going down the street, you know, like a junk car about to break down, but it hasn't broken down yet. And in your story, you report about the corporations that sponsored the climate summit. So why are so many companies jumping on the climate change bandwagon, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I called it an end of the world trade show because, I mean, it, it, to me, it's hilarious that, you know, they're talking about the end of life on Earth as we know it, sponsored by Coca-Cola. But there's money to be made. And we have ESG in the boardroom, which is environmental, social, and governance policies that are being uh, foisted on companies by board members, shareholders, because not enough good people are getting involved in corporate governance, in my opinion. And so you got these policies forced on corporations, and they're trying to, they're fig they figured out a way to make money out of it. Okay, on to the effect of these policies a blast of cold weather is expected for Europe before the end of the year, but a warmer winter is predicted. So still many European countries are facing an energy crisis. To what extent are climate policies responsible? Completely responsible. Can we put this to rest about the war? Let's look at what Europe has done over the last 20, 25 years. Europe really only has coal uh, for a natural resource. Well, that was shut down years ago, and then um, nuclear. France was a leader in nuclear, and they were sharing it with other countries. Now they're knocking down their nuclear plants. Now they're, they've mothballed some, and they're trying to bring those back online, and, bring, and they're burning more coal than they have in years. They mothballed some of those, and they've brought those back online. This is all about their policies. And can I just say, these people did not know what they're doing. In the same way that the Biden White House does not know what it's doing, they're like kids that live in their parents' basement and think they know about life. They think they know about energy and energy policy, and they don't. And that's why they've made such a mess of things. Yeah, as they jet around the world and uh, use up the carbon right. there. Well, you've been doing these reports for many years now. So where do you see all of this heading? A more common sense approach to climate change or more extremism and energy hardship? You know, it keeps going. And so even in this country, which is so energy rich, I think we're headed toward a breakdown, perhaps not as bad as Europe. But some, they're trying to kill the fossil fuel industry in this country. And at some point, um, 
it's going to reach a crisis because wind and solar don't cut it. We wish they did, but they don't. And so I'm afraid we're headed toward a breakdown and some cold winters. Thank you, Dale, for providing those insights. Sure. More and more Americans are joining the ranks of electric vehicle owners. Sales are up more than 60% despite the exorbitant cost. But are they more energy efficient? And what about unique safety risks? Brody Carter explains. The single electric car battery weighs about 1,000 pounds, requiring miners to dig up about 500,000 pounds of earth just to make one battery, using giant mining machines that burn diesel oil. All those emissions from all that energy used to dig all those materials up uh, cause uh, carbon dioxide to be emitted somewhere else. So when the electric vehicle is delivered to your driveway, uh, it's already arriving with massive emissions of carbon dioxide that you eventually sort of pay off, if you like. It's kind of like an inverse mortgage uh, by driving that instead of an internal combustion engine. From the affordability standpoint, EVs are typically more expensive, and we definitely don't want to put low-income buyers out of the market. The Biden administration hopes to sweeten the pot, promising a $7,500 tax credit if you buy a new electric vehicle. One other noticeable came to light recently in Florida following Hurricane Ian. Some EV owners discovered salt water doesn't mix well with lithium-ion batteries as cars caught fire due to salt water damage. The push towards electric vehicles is becoming a political red line, some states even banning the sale of gas-powered vehicles, California making it an executive order. Still, only 1% of vehicles on the roadways today are EVs. But at the government's level, they're hopeful to push this technology sooner than you think, which is why it's so important to take all sides into consideration and purchase what's best for you. Brody Carter, CBN News. Here with more is Young Voices commentator Ethan Brown. Ethan is founder and host of the Sweaty Penguin podcast. Ethan Sweaty Penguin, uh, that's not a Pittsburgh National Hockey League player living in Florida, is it? No, it's not, though. That would be pretty interesting. <laughs> Seriously, I want to ask you about your podcast in a minute here. But first, just how sustainable is EV technology for the nation at this time? So certainly EV technology is improving every year. I think there are some misconceptions. For example, if you have a gasoline-powered car and it's reasonably fuel efficient, it would be more sustainable to drive that car to the end of its life and then buy an electric car as opposed to just buying an electric car and junking your perfectly good car. And that's because there are impacts to actually manufacture a new electric car. But certainly in terms of carbon emissions, electric cars will beat out gasoline-powered cars, assuming the electric grid is just reasonably green as it is pretty much anywhere in the United States. Well, you live in California. Of course, most people know that the state has banned the sale of gas-powered cars by 2035. Already, you have more than one half million electric cars on the road in California. You had these rolling blackouts because of the big heat wave there this past summer. And you wrote a column suggesting the Golden State's problems are about to multiply because uh, as it moves forward, of course, pushing EVs and clean energy. But Explain what you expect to happen. Well, I hope they don't actually multiply. I live here and would not like to see blackouts, but I think that this is a big undertaking, right? To fully transition to clean transportation by 2035 certainly is exciting, but my concern was largely that 
the effort seems very focused on electric cars and not so much focused on other alternatives, things like walking, biking, public transit. I used to live in Orange County, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. Part of why I moved here is actually because there's just so much traffic driving back and forth. My friends had no desire to come see me. So I think that if we're improving some of these car-free alternatives, that can have a much bigger impact than just reducing electric cars. We can also reduce traffic. We can also reduce some of the impacts that are needed to produce electric cars. And we can uh, help people save money because, like you mentioned in the intro, electric cars, though they're getting much cheaper, are still a bit expensive today. Well, and of course, there's some good news. The U.S. Department of Energy just announced a major advance in uh, fusion energy. We could see the first fusion-powered clean energy plants in the United States within about 10 to 15 years. So what difference might that make? Instead of EVs, could we eventually see fusion-powered cars? It's possible, but if we think about it, electric vehicles have such a far head start on this because what happened uh, or what was announced this week was this was the first time that a nuclear fusion reaction had a net gain of energy. Before that, it took more energy to create the reaction than to actually, uh, or than the energy that you would get back from it. And if we look at literally any other energy source, be it a fossil fuel, be it solar or wind, be it nuclear fission, which is the nuclear energy we see now, those produce 5, 10, 20, maybe even more times the amount of energy than it takes uh, to create the energy. So I think in that sense, electric cars, similarly to a nuclear fusion car, we have such a head start. And remember, electric cars are improving just as a nuclear fusion car could improve in the future. So I think that as exciting as this is, especially from a scientific perspective, it's not some holy grail answer to all our clean power needs. I think we've already made some good progress. Yeah, I guess with the electric cars, it's all about the batteries, but those are improving and we'll get there. I guess you have, most people would say, look, you have to start somewhere. I think they just don't like it being forced on them. You've got to have an electric car. Uh, tell us about your podcast. Tell us more about The Sweaty Penguin. So the Sweaty Penguin is a comedy climate podcast presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise, and we're trying to make climate change less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. So we do two types of episodes. One is called Tip of the Iceberg, where I'll do a kind of late-night comedy-style monologue, breaking down whatever the latest climate news story was, and then I'll answer a question from an audience member, and if any of you have questions, feel free to submit them to us. And then we do deep dives, where we've done over 100 interviews with experts from 15 countries and six continents exploring a variety of environmental issues, and we'll discuss how they affect not just the environment, but also the economy, health, justice, security, etc., and explore a whole bunch of solutions for them. I think there's a lot more hope and optimism around climate than people realize. So I'm very glad that we can explore that each week. Okay, we'll check it out. Young Voices commentator Ethan Brown. Thank you, Ethan, for being with us today. God bless. Thanks for having me. Politicians do it all the time. They make many promises to get elected, and then once in office, they break them. Well, our next guest is here to set us straight on promises we can trust. O.S. Hawkins is author of the new book, The Promise Code, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim. Pastor Hawkins, it's a pleasure. So friends, relatives, neighbors may let us down, maybe even betray us, but 
You say we can trust God when our world is falling apart. Why? Well, you know, all of us have had uh, promises made. It's one thing to make a promise, but it's another thing to keep a promise. And uh, one of the things we know about God is he has a perfect record of keeping all of his promises in his own good timing. And, you know, Gary, the way we the way we realize whether someone keeps their promise is based on their character. You take a, an unrepentant thief goes before a judge for the 12th or 14th time, and he says, Judge, I promise you this time I'm not going to do it again. Well, based on his character and his past performance, that judge is not going to give him much slack or mercy. The reason we can trust God's promises is because of his character. And Hebrews 6.18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. So what are God's greatest promises, Pastor? Well, they're woven. There are over 8,000 of them in the Bible. They're woven through all the scriptures. You know, it's one thing to read the Bible and struggle with its precepts, but it's quite another thing to believe the Bible and stand on its promises. And uh, the, the, the Bible is laced with promises God has made to us. And uh, so I wrote the book so that people could begin a new adventure of, of, of really standing and believing uh, the Word of God and the promises. And the whole code series, this is like the 14th in the whole code series of devotionals. And they're all designed not to get people into the Word of God, but to get the Word of God into us. So it becomes a vital part of our everyday living. So where do we begin then to learn about these promises? How do we recognize them when we read the Bible? A lot of people misunderstand the Bible. Well, there are some promises that are unconditional. Uh, for example, we see a rainbow in the sky. Remember, God never destroyed the world by flood again. That's unconditional. The promise Jesus said in John 14, I will come again. That's an unconditional promise. That's not conditional what I do. He's going to come again. But most of the promises that we have in the Bible are conditioned on something that we do. For example, God promised he would, con he would forgive us of all of our sin, 1 John 1, 9. But it's prefaced with an if. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So many of these promises in the Bible that God gives us are, are conditioned on certain responses that we have to the Word of God. And, you know, the Bible says, how do we find it? We don't, we don't find a Bible promise. Bible promises find us. In the normal traffic pattern of our reading the Bible, the Holy Spirit will quicken a verse to us, and, and we know it's just for us from God for that particular circumstance in our life. That's why Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And, and you had mentioned that many promises in life are conditional. If you do this, I'll do that. It's a lot like that in the Bible. You talked about the uh, conditional promises there, but what promises of God are unconditional? Well, the promise of his return, that, for example, is the most prominent one I can think of, that, that he promised that, that, uh, that he was going to come again and receive us unto himself, that where he is, we might be also. And so that, that's definitely one of those unconditional promises that God has just made to us. Uh, 
whoever believes on the name of the Son of God shall have eternal life. Uh, what a promise that is to us. And of course, the, the first one in the, in the promise code, and may I just say, Gary, before we complete that, all the royalties to all the code books, and they've sold three million copies the last couple of years, all the royalties go to Mission Dignity. We're on a mission to bring dignity to some forgotten folks, retired pastors and their widows in their declining years at the poverty level. And so people can know when they buy these beautiful gift editions to give, the royalties are going to those folks. But uh, the first one I put in there was the promise of a brighter tomorrow. You know, I don't know how many times most of us as believers have climbed up on Romans 8, 28, which says, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called to his purpose. Doesn't mean everything happens as good, but it does mean that God can take everything in our life, wave it together in the tapestry of the cross and make it come out to our good and his glory. Pastor Wes Hawkins, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. A Satan Club for Elementary School Kids in Chesapeake, Virginia. And again this year at the Illinois State Capitol Building, a Satanic Temple display alongside a Hanukkah menorah and a nativity display. All in the name of inclusion, tolerance, free speech, and religious freedom. Distasteful. You don't like it? Neither do I. But the Illinois Satanic display reveals to the whole world the truth about Satan. He's still active in our world, coming for our children, coming to kill, steal, and destroy everything that's good. So beware. Committed Christians will never yield to him. He cannot steal away our joy during this Christmas season or at any time. This is the time of celebration, and we won't allow him or his disciples to crash our party. Yes, Jesus is the reason for the season. Author Jack Countryman recently reminded us about the true peace that only the Son of God can give us. It is through him that we find that all the peace we'll ever need, and he just comforts us. You see, he loves us with an everlasting love. Yes, he does. And Jesus is the reason for the season. Not only the Christmas season, but for every season. May you come to know him and experience the peace that only he can give at Christmas and every day. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, Merry Christmas. Thank you.